Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. He is the Messiah from the line of David. Matthew shows us that Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. Matthew tells us Jesus is going to bring God's blessing to all the nations, just like Moses did. Jesus' kingdom is about God's rescue operation for the whole world. It's an upside-down kingdom where there are no privileged members. Everyone is invited. Everyone is called to turn, to repent, to follow Jesus, and to join his family. Matthew is about the people who are unimportant, the nobodies, the irreligious. These are the people who are transformed by their willingness to trust, to have faith in Jesus Christ. morning. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here, and uh, I'd invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you should be able to find one in the, in the pew rack in front of you. And also welcome to you in the East Auditorium as well. There's some folks walking around with some Bibles if you need one today. And uh, as you flip there, I, I remember in my early days of youth ministry, that used to be the role I had here, I would take kids to youth conferences where there was this uh, little quirky two-man band. And if you were involved in youth ministry or maybe a kid in a youth group in the late 90s, early 2000s, you might've come across this group called Lost and Found. And uh, these guys, one of the things they did is they did a, a full bicycle tour, uh, musical tour around uh, Germany and, uh, and, they're, and they're English speaking. And so they're trying to figure out how to um, kind of encourage the crowd by saying, rock on in German. And so they look it up. And so it, Stein is the word for rock and Alf is the word for on. And so they would go around saying Stein Alf. And uh, eventually uh, an English speaking German stopped them and said, why do you guys keep on chanting rock on top of? Meaning the paraphrase or the, the expression or the, the, it didn't transliterate into German. Uh, and uh, it was funny, it was, it was kind of a laugh point. And actually uh, the band uh, from that point forward, all their shirts, they would have Steinauf, you know, for rock, rock on top of uh, as their expression for the band. And so uh, it really is, it, it's a funny but a great example of uh, just how easily expressions uh, can get lost in translation and interpretation. And here we are, kind of modern day, just two different Western cultures. Think about how much of a bigger leap it is for us to interpret and understand an Eastern culture 2,000 years ago that we read in Scripture. And so this reality, this difficulty of uh, interpretation and, and, and understanding can often be the case for our passage today. Uh, we've been working through uh, the book of Matthew in our series, Jesus According to Matthew, and we come to what is arguably the most known passage, maybe, in all of Scripture, even people who are unfamiliar with Scripture, not even realizing that they're quoting the Sermon on the Mount, and that's chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. John Starr, um, arguably one of the most renowned uh, Bible scholars of uh, the 20th century, said it this way. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of Jesus' teaching, though arguably it is the least understood, and it is certainly the least obeyed. 
And the reason for that is because it, it includes very challenging teachings and passages uh, that we're not going to be able to capture all today. We're, we did a whole series on it a number of years ago that was seven weeks long. Uh, but just a few of those teachings that Jesus teaches, talks about uh, that profound teaching of, of loving your enemies and even praying for those who hate you. He has challenging passages about marriage and divorce where amidst all of it, essentially Jesus is saying, hey, the best way of life when possible is to stay married. And anyone who's been through the pain of a divorce knows that that is certainly a true statement. He talks about adultery and lust, and he talks about that if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out, and if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. This graphic language, essentially where Jesus in the expression is saying, do whatever it takes to beat back and overcome sin in your life. Jesus talks about uh, touchy topics such as money and generosity. He talks about really trusting God versus living a life of worry. Then Jesus challenges us, even in all the good we do, he says, what's the actual motive of your heart? Uh, he talks about judging others, and then ultimately he ends his sermon really pretty much revealing, okay, where are you heading as far as eternity is concerned, heaven or hell? And so, it's a, it's, a, it's a sermon that I would encourage you to take some time uh, to read over the uh, course of this next week. It only take 13 minutes. Uh, that's about how long it takes to read the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes you wish we could do that. Uh, same deal and preach a sermon in 13 minutes if Jesus could do it. Why do we think we should talk longer? I don't know, but we do. Uh, but for today, but for today, in an effort to catch an overall scope of uh, not just all the contents of the Sermon on the Mount, on the Mount but really what is the goal of Jesus' teaching? What is he trying to uh, communicate in his teaching uh, at the uh, conclusion, really, of his message? And so that's what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 7, the third chapter of the three chapters that cover the Sermon on the Mount. And he concludes his sermon with the words, not rock on or rock on top of, but he concludes his sermon with a different understanding of a rock. And that is in chapter 7, verse 24. So if you've got it, I'd invite you to follow with me. You could say this is Jesus' point of the Sermon on the Mount, of all his teaching, not just the Sermon on the Mount, of all his teaching. He says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Okay, and so Jesus is saying that when you build your house on him, build your life on him, it's like a man who built his house on top of the rock, on top of the foundation that is Jesus Christ and his ways. And so Jesus goes on. He says, the wise man built his house upon the rock. I didn't grow up in church, but someone told me this was a song y'all used to sing when you were kids. <laughs> and then Jesus says, the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But on the inverse, everyone who would hear these words of mine and yet not put them into practice, well, that is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of what it looks like to build our house, to build our life on top of the rock, the foundation of Jesus Christ and his ways. And as we look at how we do that, uh, there's a few things we need to understand about 
building our life and building our house on the foundation of Jesus Christ versus, say, another foundation. And that's the first recognize that there are, there are only two foundations. There are only two ways in which to approach our life, either the world's way, which is shifting sand, or God's way, Jesus' way, which is the foundation of the rock. In other words, there is no third option. And this is going to be important as we look at more of Jesus' conclusion of his sermon. That we see you can either build your house on the rock or you can build your house on the sand. You cannot have a third option. There are only two options in which to build our lives. And then Jesus really levels that up. He takes it to the next level, talking not just about our life and how we're building our life, but he goes on in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 13, he talks about there are only two ways to enter into eternity. He says it this way in chapter 7, verse 13, if you want to scan your eyes back up the passage there. Jesus says it this way. He says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And so the question that we have then is, which road are we on? Which gate are we entering through? And so as Jesus paints, there are only two roads, two ways to build our lives, and only two gates. But what's interesting is that even though there are only two ways, or excuse me, two roads, two gates, there's actually, we will find three ways to enter those two gates. There are three different ways to enter those two gates. Two of them are obvious, and one is arguably Jesus' greatest warning for us sitting here today. Okay, so to understand this, the first choice, that more the obvious one, is to intentionally just build your life on sand. The first choice is to say, essentially, I reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God. I reject Jesus Christ as the Savior or Lord. No, I do not believe. I do not place my faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, I'll take my chances on the ACDC approach, that I'm on a highway to... That is the last time I will sing in this sermon. I scout's honor. I know. I promise. That's it. So we know many of us are familiar with the song. It's a catchy song, but please, please do not be misinformed by it. You know, the lyrics go, um, it's a big party where all my friends are going to be there too, and nothing could be further from the truth. God's re word reveals that hell is, 1 Thessalonians 1.9, uh, it's a place of everlasting destruction. And it is where you are shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. You are separated from God eternally. Jesus says later in the book of Matthew that it is a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 21.8 says it is a place for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexual immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Saying, yes, we all die a physical death, but there are those who are going to die an eternal death. An eternal, that is the penalty of our sin, and a separation from God eternally. Okay? And so that is the first way to the wide gate. All right? And that one's pretty obvious, that we reject Jesus Christ um, of our own choosing. The second way um, is another obvious one, and that is simply to say, well, yes, 
say yes to Jesus Christ, that I do believe he is the son of the living God, that he came, lived a perfect life, died as a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of my sin, thus saving me from the wide eternal destruction gate and path. Uh, Jesus is my savior uh, and he is the Lord of my life on whom I am building my house, whom I am building my life. Where eternally, it looks more like this. Revelation 21 again where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, behold, I am making everything new and those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. And so those are the two probably we would agree obvious ways in the room today to either reject Jesus Christ or to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the third way, the third way that Jesus reveals is maybe at first blush not so obvious, but again, I would argue it is the one that Jesus came most preaching and teaching and warning us about. And it's also right here in the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 21 through 23 of chapter 7. Where, and this is sandwiched right between the uh, narrow and wide gate teaching and the illustration of building your house, your life on the rock versus the sand. Jesus says it this way. He says, third way, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. You see here, Jesus reveals that there is a third way. That there is a third way that you can build your life on the sand and enter through the wide gate of destruction, and that is those who thought they were good to go, who thought they were in good standing, but surprised to find on Judgment Day that they were not, that they were deceived. And they were deceived either by false teaching, which Jesus also warns about in the Sermon on the Mount, or by self-deceit. And so what I wanna ensure that we accomplish here in our time today is that as we examine God's word and his teaching and his instruction, Uh, recognizing this can be a very frightening passage, that we would walk out of here with the assurance that our salvation is on the firm foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ on the narrow path that leads to the narrow gate to eternal life, because that's what we all want. There's the one thing that we all want to be sure of. There's a song like, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go today. Um, It's just understand, we want to make sure that we're going, which I don't know why I said that. That's just a funny song, but okay, so... How can we be assured, how can we be certain that we are building our life and our eternity this way? Well, to illustrate, um, a number of years ago, probably about 10 years ago now, um, at this service time in this room, uh, Pastor Wayne and I, and some of you might have been here for this, Pastor Wayne and I were uh, teaching a sermon together uh, at a round table with a couple of stools. And we used to have this glass tabletop round table and these kind of like fancy stools. And the stage that you see before you, if you can see it, um, was not the stage we had before. It was kind of this 
kind of homely thing with like carpeted stage pieces that we could move together and separate as we needed to for different things we do. And so up here, we'd have these two big carpeted pieces that were pushed together with a pretty significant crack in the middle. Um, and so you might see where this is heading. And so as uh, we set up the table and set up the chairs, Pastor Wayne's sitting here, I'm getting settled here. I'm scooting my, my stool up to the table to get myself situated when lo and behold, one of the legs of my stool happened to find that mysterious crack in the floor. And the rest, as they say, is history. I go down, the glass tabletop flips up, there's like glasses of water and Bibles and sermon notes going everywhere, and by the time everything settles, the stuff and me included, I am literally laying horizontal in my senior pastor's lap. <laughs> For what was one of the most awkward moments, yet tender, to have ever graced the stage of First Christian Church. And so I was not obviously on a firm foundation, now we've got a better stage and I don't fall through the cracks, which is good. And so here's the point, for you today, this is my burden, that you would discover that with all that we could talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, to ensure for you today that your eternity is confidently placed on solid ground that there are no cracks in your confidence as to where you are building your life and where you are going eternally, okay? And so to illustrate this, I'm actually gonna use um, the illustration of a three-legged stool in that um, as we think about our firm foundation, there are, you could say, three legs of the stool that we need to have in place to be confident uh, of where our foundation and our eternity rests, okay? So let's say that the first leg of the stool is to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the, hear, hear the good news for you today. This is it, this is the gospel. First, the bad news. It says in scripture, and we realize in our own life, we've all sinned. We've all messed up. We've all missed the mark. That's what the word sin literally means in Romans 3.23. Um, we are imperfect because of our sin, which separates us from having a relationship with a perfect God. We are imperfect. God is perfect. And so the penalty of that is an eternal separation. We stay separate not only in this life, but we stay separate from him for eternity, which is that second death in hell. But the good news God demonstrated his love for us, even while we were separated, even while we were sinners, and that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for the penalty, to pay for the penalty of our sins, which we just celebrated in communion. And so he pays the price for our sins, and then Romans 6.23, we receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, an eternal relationship with God, uh, both in this life and for all of eternity, okay? And so that is, you've now heard, you're hearing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he saves us from our sin and gives us the gift of eternal life, okay? So now that you've heard that, the second leg of the stool is to then respond and hopefully to respond favorably by receiving and declaring that yes, Jesus Christ is my savior and my Lord. Romans 10.9 says it this way, it says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, or you receive, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. And so 
That is the first and the second leg of the stool of which our Christian faith and our eternity stand, okay? And so as we, that's, really this is the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. If you've been around church, you know this verse very well. It says this, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. And so it's not by works so that no one can boast. And so, just to clarify, can you, through any moral obedience on your own part, earn your salvation? No, no, there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, to earn favor with God. Okay, that has already been done for us in Jesus Christ. Again, that's what we celebrate in communion, that which has been done for us, not what we do. Okay, so we are forgiven, brought into eternal relationship with God by grace, which is a gift through our faith in him, okay? And so the question then, so isn't that the end of the story? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that everything we just said is absolutely true and accurate when it comes to what um, provides us a relationship with God eternally. But you could say no in that then there is evidence reflecting the legitimacy of our hearing and our declaring, which we would say is the third leg of the stool. So hearing and declaring and accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is all it takes, but then after that, there's a response that reflects the legitimacy that we've actually declared that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. And Jesus points it out. Again, verse 21, look at that. This is how he paints it. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everyone who declares with their mouth, Romans 10, 9, who has the second leg of the stool in place, will necessarily enter the kingdom of heaven. But what does he say? Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so what Jesus is warning us against, what he is cautioning us, he's warning us against merely a audible verbal declaration at the absence of moral obedience. Jesus warns us against just saying, oh yeah, sure, I believe Jesus is Lord. Just a verbal declaration at the absence of actually making him the Lord, the functional leader of our lives. That is the warning that Jesus gives because he says if that is the case, if you just say, oh yeah, I believe Jesus is God and you don't actually pursue him as Lord in your life, then he warns, this will be what you hear. I never knew you because the respondents never truly knew him. And so the third leg is to respond in following Jesus and obedience, okay? In another teaching, Jesus says it this way. He says, uh, Luke 6, 46, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Elsewhere, Jesus says, my sheep or my followers, they listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. In John 14, he says it plainly. He says, if you love me, Jesus says, then keep my commands. If you love me, keep me up, keep my commands. And so while hearing and declaring that Jesus is Lord is certainly the first two legs of the stool, the legitimacy of that declaration is found in the evidence of actually following Jesus in obedience to what he says, which is really, really the content of the Sermon on the Mount, him showing us and teaching us how we're to live. All right. 
So to help us out just a little bit, you know, it's pretty clear that Jesus says that wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. But the goal of Jesus' teaching, both here and throughout um, the Gospels, is not to leave us there and to not leave us hanging by a thin string over the pit of hell. No, Jesus, it says he desires for all of us to be saved. And so the question we want to ask and we want to answer then is, okay, how do we make sure we have the third leg of the stool uh, in place? How, how can I be sure that, um, I guess, my obedience is obedient enough? Uh, maybe another way of asking it is, you know, where is the line? Like, where's the line on this obedience thing? Because if Jesus is warning us to be obedient, and I know I'm not perfect, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'd be freaking out thinking, okay, where is that line? You know, at what point uh, does my obedience cross over to disobedience that in some time puts me in danger of my eternal salvation? Where is that line? Well, the answer is found in recognizing that we're actually asking the wrong question to ask the question, where is the line on my obedience? How obedient do I have to be to ensure that I am saved is actually the wrong question. The right question is not where is the line, but which direction am I going? Last week, Pastor Wayne uh, really painted this when he talked about Jesus calling his first disciples. Uh, in the uh, passages that precede the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went to these disciples, these guys, well, they weren't disciples yet. He went to these fishermen, to these tax collectors, and what did he say? He said, follow me. He told these guys to follow him, to head this direction, to head my direction. Uh, and we see clearly through the Gospels, they messed it up. They disobeyed. They, they blew it from time to time. But what did they do? They were forgiven. They got back up, and they kept on following Jesus. And so what we must recognize uh, is that there is a difference between following Jesus and messing up and giving forgiveness. And we'll, we'll look at that here in a minute. But let me give us some evidence first that says, okay, how do I know that I'm following Jesus? Because I know I mess up and I don't want to get caught in the line game. How do I know I'm following Jesus even though there's sin in my life? Well, I would answer these questions in my own heart and head if I were you. It says this. Um, a, you could say, to yourself, you ask, are you actively pursuing to obey Jesus' commands in your life? Do you, do you actively seek out what does Jesus teach and do you aim to follow him in your life? Do you, as it says in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, if that's you, well then walk confidently. You are on the narrow road if you are pursuing the way of Jesus. But then B, when you fail at A, which we all will, and we all do, do you confess your sin? Do you receive God's forgiveness? And do you repent? Do you turn away from that sin with God's help? Do you aim to turn away and live out as it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us our sins. And the justness and this faithfulness comes in Jesus Christ. He will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from all unrighteousness. And then C, wash, rinse, repeat. Repeat, repeat, repeat. We follow after Jesus, but when we fail, we confess, we get God's forgiveness, and we get his help to keep on following him, okay? Take heart. If that is a description of your life, you are on the narrow road. You are, can be confident in your salvation. Romans 8 reminds us that there is nothing that can separate us from the love uh, and the salvation in God that comes in Jesus Christ. You are assured today of your salvation. However, 
On the flip side, there is a difference between that person and the person who would miss the warning of, of Romans 6, where the Apostle Paul, and this was actually uh, the passage that we looked at in the uh, optional men's morning uh, retreat thing. So I don't know how many of you guys got up and did this, but if you didn't, that's all right. I got a free pass today because I'm going to talk about it. All right. So Romans 6, Apostle Paul says, hey, since there is grace, essentially, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Basically saying, hey, there's grace. We're going to be forgiven. So hey, why don't we just keep on sinning because God's going to forgive me anyway. What does the Apostle Paul say? He says, by no means. The Apostle Paul says, no way, you've missed it. He says, we are dead to sin and we have been raised to a new life, a new way of following Jesus Christ in our lives. And so what we're recognizing here is that in the end, literally in the end, there is a difference. There is a difference between the person who is struggling with sin and temptation, as we all do, but who is confessing that, seeking forgiveness, and pursuing following Jesus Christ in their life. There's a marked difference, which Jesus paints, between that person and the person who says, you know, who cares? Jesus is going to forgive me anyway. The person who just, frankly, blatantly embraces and maybe even celebrates sin, claiming, ah, who cares? Jesus will forgive me anyway. If that describes you, if that describes your approach to life, then you have heard the words of Jesus and chose not to do them. You are building your life on sand, and I am burdened for you this day. And that, yes, I have a burden for those who are outside the church who obviously reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but one of the heaviest burdens I have as a pastor is for those of you who, who honestly, who sit here week after week after week and the gospel, the good news in song and in preaching is poured out and spread like seed, Jesus says, and that seed falls in your heart. Your heart is not fertile soil for that and it is, uh, Jesus says, like a hardened path and it's like trying to sow seed on a sidewalk. I fear you have misunderstood. I fear you have been deceived, that you bought into a lie, that there is some sort of middle way, that if as long as you just say, Lord, Lord, yeah, he's the Lord, but don't actually pursue following him in your life, then the third leg of your stool is falling through a crack in the floor and you are missing the confidence and the assurance of Jesus' grace in forgiveness, but also recognizing Jesus' grace in showing you the best way to live your life. That as the Lord of your life, that that too, we say, yes, forgiveness is a grace, but recognize Jesus' teaching is also a grace the way that he shows us to live, when we buy into it, we recognize and realize it is the best way to approach our life. And so we all must know that we cannot have a third way. There are only two roads. You cannot be on two roads at once. You can only enter through either the narrow or the broad gate. Um, and so there's one of two roads that you are on. There is one of two foundations you are building your life. And so the question is, are you building your house upon the rock? Are you going down the narrow road that leads to the narrow gate? That is the challenge of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount concludes with these two verses. One more verse, verse 28 and 29, or one more passage, I should say. It concludes this way. Jesus is done saying, it says, when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, the crowds were amazed. They were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. What I love about that conclusion is that, you know, we look at the stories of Jesus and we think, oh man, his miracles were amazing. Look at all the cool things he did. But what catches me here is that they were amazed 
not at his miracles, but they were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his ways. They were amazed at how he showed them they could live out the third leg of their life stool by following Jesus' teaching. And so for you, if you've never submitted your life to the teaching of Jesus, to the one who teaches with authority, to the one who is God in the flesh, who has authority over heaven and earth, would you give him authority in your life this day as the Lord of your life? Maybe for you today, you've, you've just never heard this. You've never clearly heard it or been presented, and so you've never had the opportunity to even declare Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, you can declare him today and in right understanding, move into following him as Lord. Maybe for you, you've grown up in church and you've heard this a bunch of times or you thought you heard it and you declared, yeah, yeah, Jesus is Lord, but he really means nothing outside of showing up and sitting in a pew on a Sunday morning. Well, then you have the opportunity to, to correct your understanding of what Jesus has called you to and what grace he has for the way in which you live your life and adding that third leg of the stool in your life today. Uh, from this day forward. And so for that, um, let me pray for us and there'll be an opportunity to respond to that invitation here uh, before our service is closed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you sent your son Jesus, um, that we have a God who knows what it's like to be here on earth, that that was a, a grace that you gave us. And then in that grace, um, you saved us from our sin through his sacrifice, but you also gave us the grace of showing uh, the way you want us to live, the best ways that you have for our life. And so, Father, may we recognize that by the prompting of your Holy Spirit. May uh, hearts not be um, hardened, but may they be fertile and soft for your seed of your gospel to take root and grow uh, wherever we're at in our journey with you, we pray uh, this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we discern our own path and where we're heading, uh, there's two sides to this coin uh, in Jesus' sermon that this is the conclusion. But at the beginning, in chapter 5, Jesus talks about that we have a responsibility for those of us who are building our house on the rock and going through the narrow gate. The question Jesus asks of us is, how are we bringing others with us? He says it this way, and we talked about it last week, that we are the light of the world. He says it also that we are the salt of the earth, this idea that when people get a taste of us, they should be getting a taste of what it means to follow Jesus. Not be perfect, but to try to follow him and to, and to recognize what forgiveness can be all about and not earning salvation, all that good stuff. And so it was interesting. I came across uh, some information um, that, and that uh, in our area, the Decatur area, uh, that 40% of the Google searches in the month of December, I'm going somewhere with this, that 40% of the Google searches uh, in the area of Decatur in the month of December were on the topics of depression, hopelessness, despair, and the like. And so as some of the pastors and staff gathered to say, okay, what do we want to offer to our community this Easter? Um, you might have seen some billboards around town and you probably have seen these uh, in your program uh, that we recognize at Easter that Jesus' new life is all about hope for us as well. And so I'm gonna invite you to take these uh, little cards in both rooms out of your program and just to prove you're still awake, I want you to wave them in the air like you just do not care. Okay, I see a few, a few more. East Auditorium, I have a two-way camera, I can see. 
I just lied. I, I shouldn't have lied. I can't see you. I'm just trusting that you're doing it, okay? And I want you to stand with me. Uh, as uh, we're going to have a time of prayer, yes, corporately uh, up front where um, we can pray about the needs in our life. But uh, before we do that, I want to give each of us the opportunity to just pray silently in our seat to say, okay, assuming I am on this path, I've built my house on the rock and I'm, I'm heading through that narrow gate and I have the hope of Jesus Christ both in this life and eternally, who then is God calling me to invite into a journey to begin to take some first steps into discovering the hope of Jesus Christ in their life and their eternity? Okay, so we're gonna give you just a few seconds, a few moments just to ask God to say, okay, God, who do I need to invite to hear the hope of your son, Jesus Christ? And so let's pray about that now. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. And we want to live out a reason for the hope that we have, as it says in Peter. Um, And so, Father, would you lead us, each of us respectively, yes, as individuals, but then collectively as a church, who is it that you are leading us to invite uh, to hear the hope of your son this Easter? Lord, hear our prayer. Father, we thank you for your prompting. And now may we be obedient to the promptings of your Holy Spirit um, as you give us boldness and courage uh, to extend that invitation here in the days ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.